All right. I'm Meg Ray, and I work in computer science education. Specifically, I train educators to teach computer science uh, at the K-12 level, and I'm specifically interested in teaching how we teach computer science to students with disabilities. I've recently come out with a book called Code This Game that's for 10 to 14 year olds learning how to code and it tries to bottle up project-based learning, computational thinking, and all that good stuff that goes along with learning to code. Do you know that there are over 200 computer programming languages? That's insane. Meg Ray is the teacher in residence at Cornell Tech. She's responsible for the implementation and design of the Teacher in Residence program. It's a coaching program for K-8 teachers in New York City schools. She's an experienced middle and high school computer science teacher herself. She's worked in special ed and directed the design of the Codesters Python curricula for middle school students. She was a writer for the Computer Science Teachers Association K-12 CS Standards and was a special advisor to the K-12 CS Framework. She lives in New York. She is a tattooed, blue-haired, metal mom. Self-described. And Meg joins me in this episode to talk about computer languages. I'm kind of fascinated by this analogy that came up in a recent episode about being dropped in a new place without language. So I kind of wanted this episode to be like a travel guide. Let's drop into different places and talk about what makes the languages of code relevant in that space. I think you'll agree, Meg was pretty much the perfect person to call. Before we get started, facebook.com slash no such thing podcast. I still need you to fill out the listener survey if you haven't done that already. And wherever you downloaded this show, it means a huge amount to me and to future listeners of the show because you keep us going if you subscribe, like, rate, and review the show. It means a lot to me. Appreciate your time. Enjoy the show. This is No Such Thing, a podcast about the promise and reality of learning with technology. I'm Mark Lesser. Awesome. Um, I love your hair color. Your hair is longer than the last time I saw you. Yes. Uh, uh, growing it out, seeing how much blue I can, I can get. Right. But we're already those parents at daycare. We we've been talked to about how metal is not appropriate for the whole class, and you know, metal the mom meaning with the blue hair meaning heavy metal. Music. <laughs> yes. And I'm the mom with the blue hair and tattoos that all the kids are like, mom, her hair's blue. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's great. Yeah. You know, that's a fun parent to be, I would imagine. I- I'm a different weird, like weird parent uh, or, or oddball parent, but not the blue hair. I, if I had hair, it would be blue. There you go. Um, they have a lot of commentary about my beard. Oh, I'm sure. Um, Meg, I'm so I'm so excited to have you on. I'm so glad we could do this, and thank you for making time. Uh, yeah, thank we, you. We are talking today about um, we're talking about computer science today, but um, 
we're going to talk about a, a few things. Specifically, I wanted to kind of theme our conversation around uh, the language of code, right? And um, yeah. I had this interesting conversation episodes ago um and and this has happened a few times where this where an analogy has come up and and um between written and spoken language and computer language and uh there are many good good interesting kind of probes or um, ideas that can come of that analogy. Um, but but one of the things that has come up is uh, one of my guests was saying, talking about, you know, being dropped in a new place and, and uh, having no language and what it, what it means to have to um, not only develop syntax and uh you know vocabulary and and uh, these kinds of things but also the the culture of language right and um and being and how language builds you you build it, it sort of becomes relevant to a culture and these kinds of things so um anyway it's a it's kind of a big idea but i thought you know who better when when we were connected uh reconnected recently with your new book and i thought who better to have this conversation with about uh computer languages and and digging into this idea a little bit um more than the one and only meg ray who i've known for some time i i want to start kind of at the beginning right here's one of here's one of the things um this episode is going to be kind of like a travel guide. Uh, we're going to drop into different places and talk about what makes the languages of code relevant in that space, right? So your your game for this being our travel guide on this. Oh yeah, and I love this conversation partially because I'm all about bringing together the two silos of education and the tech world. Yeah, and I think this is the perfect journey to bring those two things together. Terrific. I knew, I knew I had, uh, the right guide. Um, so, but to, let's start at the beginning. So is there, I want to talk about whether there's a, a way that coding language comes to be right. Is it for folks who don't know how this stuff comes about? Um, is it one person's bright idea uh, for doing something in a particular way? Is it does it like come from the heavens? How how do languages come to be? Traditionally, I think it's really come out of a need, and it's come from a lot of it has been developed out of the military and academia. So you know that's one thing that we can look at as far as like who's developing these languages and and how how can we be more inclusive in that right? Um, and then I also wanted to bring up, and I'm sorry, I'm just going to unabashedly be plugging <laughs> Python because I love Python because it was my first language and the community totally embraced me. So I, I might be talking about it a little bit. Um, so in that case, the language, yes, it was developed by one person. Um but then it's an open source language. So there are a group of rotating maintainers who make decisions about it, but anyone can become a contributor right. to the Python programming language, you know, and there's other languages like that out there as well. Right. 
I was trying to think, you know, like in talking to students over time about the concept of open source, um, like, do you have an analogy you use when you explain what open source is? That's a great question. Right. So, so here's, I I have no idea why this pops into my head at this moment, but um, when Mm -hmm. we were kids, uh, we had like a, um, there was a space in town that they would flood uh, if you wanted to skate and play hockey, right? And uh, there was this agreement that, the, you know, town would kind of flood this space, but then whoever showed up, you maintained the ice, uh, you swept it if there was snow on it, you reset the goals or you brought goals. So it was like it, there was a... Um, there were just a set of agreements about how we use this ice as a community and what it took to sort of maintain an update uh, from one use to the next. Is that, am I, am I off my rocker? That's brilliant. Can I use that in my classes? I, I, yes, I, I, I wish you would. That's, uh, I am, uh, that's an open license on that. But I, I'll copy left on it. (laughs) It's copy left. Um, Okay, so languages come out of different needs. It can be from a person, but it can often be maintained by a community. That would be sort of an an open source. Um, Is there also the other end of the spectrum where we have kind of very closed down proprietary uh, languages? Oh, yeah, I'm sure. And, you know, I don't want to speak too much about something I'm not super familiar with. I would assume that possibly Swift is like that. Maybe some other, any language that might have come out of a company may or may not be open source. They're probably less likely to be. Yep. Yep. So, so, um, are those the languages like people often? So, right now I'm doing a lot of work in, um, uh, work readiness and really thinking, and this has been, um, a long time I've been doing that kind of work, but, but I've made a transition to a a new gig where, uh, I'm more specifically focused on, especially how industry wants to participate in the process of sort of bringing generations into whether it's computer science Mm -hmm. or health sciences or other things, uh, in computer science, I hear this um, phrase professional programming languages a lot. Like, oh, uh, what? Like a professional programming language. Uh, am I, am I, is, is that a thing? A and B is a professional programming language, just a language that gets used uh, for the purpose of selling things. What is a professional programming language? So I think it was, a term made up by teachers and educators to differentiate <laughs> languages from educational languages. Okay. Um, so like, like, um, so professional programming language, uh, as opposed to something like being in a scratch environment. Right. Right. So um, you might get hired at a startup and maybe they are using go that's a professional programming language, not necessarily meaning it's selling something, right? Uh, but you get hired at a startup, they're probably not using Scratch or Logo, right? Okay. Okay. And I, I think there's a lot of debate in the CS Ed world about 
the value of educational languages versus professional languages, who, uh, which groups of students should learn what, are they important? Um, I, that's a whole can of worms to unpack there. Right, right. Um, which, which brings me to my next question about um, what languages people should learn. Can we just talk very quickly, for those who don't know the term, um, let's talk about full stack development. There's like there there are trends right in the in the CS uh, developers world, and I I don't know how long ago five years ago it became really popular on a resume to be a full stack developer. Um, what does that mean to you? And when students ask you like when students talk to you about what kind of developer to be or what languages to learn, do you advocate for being a full stack developer or do you advocate for um, specialty? Uh, well, let me start with what it means to me. So uh, to me, a software stack is just what are all the pieces of software that work together at a specific company um, that makes up their stack? Right. And this is everything from their front end, their web design through their back end and maybe multiple layers of of back end work. Um, so I think there's always this sort of uh, tension between people who are like, I am only a back end developer or mm -hmm. I am only front end and people who are more willing to be full stack. And I think you're right. If you look right now uh, for software engineering jobs, they almost all are looking for a full stack developer. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it just depends on the kid and their interests. It's a great place to start. And if they learn the skills needed to become a full stack developer and, and realize that they hate the front end or something like that, then, then they can move away from it, but at least they're informed. Um, because even if they end up hating, say, front end, you can't just work, be a back-end developer in isolation and not know what's happening with the rest of your product, right? Right. So it, it can't hurt to start there. But is it... <sighs> It feels to a non-programmer like there are just so many languages now. Um, is it really possible to be a full stack developer, or like do people use that term as a as a pretty um, as as like a vague vague notion of I know uh, as as a vague notion of being a generalist with code? Like, is that essentially what we're saying? I think so, and. I really think to be a software engineer or a developer, it, it's not just about being, say, fluent in one language, right? It's important to be fluent mm -hmm. in one or more languages, but really you need to develop a skill set where you can generalize and learn and pivot to another language fairly quickly. Yeah. It, it's different than... You know, here's where the analogy to spoken languages kind of breaks apart, I feel like. Uh -huh. um, because being a developer is a set of skills that doesn't necessarily tie you to a language. And it's not as quite as daunting to switch over into something else that you've had some experience with um, than it is to say, 
okay, you're working in French and now you have to switch to a whole different language and, you know, you're going to speak Taiwanese now, mm, right? Right. I think it's the analogy falls apart a bit there. Huh. I wonder, maybe we need to have a conversation. We need to like phone a friend and get a linguist um, involved, right? Because I know something about, you know, like languages have orthographies, right? Like you have, you have yeah. like, uh, so I don't know, maybe we could extend the analogy and, and they would have more to say, but, um, that's for, sure. that's for, and now that you, sorry, now that you say that, I guess I'm thinking about, eh, it would probably be easier say if you're programming in a functional programming paradigm to move to another language that supports that versus switching over, um, to something that works completely differently, you know, uh. so sort of like learning um, Spanish, we have lots of similar right. root words uh, versus learning another language where it's based on a different system. Yeah. So maybe there is maybe there is a way to uh, to uphold our analogy next next time we get together, we'll have to uh, phone a linguist. Yes. Um, I'll have to look back at my, uh, my contacts and find, <laughs> find a linguist for us. Find a linguist. Yeah. Uh, there's gotta be a website for that, right? A way to oh, just search, search your local linguists. Um, well, I'm reading, um, because internet, can you get her? <laughs> it's a great book. Whoa. <laughs> no, but that's a great idea. Um, right? you know, you be surprised. Sometimes I have had some luck um, just emailing an author and and giving him a goofy idea. So who knows? Maybe we need to send an email. There you go. Um, all right. So we talked about uh, I've, uh, we talked about language origins. We talked about mm -hmm. some of these relevant terms that come up. Let's let's get traveling. Okay. Ready. Um, so I thought it would be fun to start with historical languages, right? And um, because for some reason I'm, I'm, uh, we're like having a whole conversation in analogies uh, today, um, I'm going to go with like a literature analogy. And what I was thinking about is, is Shakespeare, right? We have, mm -hmm. uh, you hear people make arguments from time to time that it makes no sense that we learn Elizabethan English or old English or read in, um, some of these languages that, that we will likely never see again in, um, in our culture. What are the what are the coding languages that come up that, um, you know, maybe maybe are just uh, important? Maybe they're important to the history of CS. Maybe they're important to understanding how CS has evolved. Like, what are those languages to you? Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think of some of the classics um, that I know a lot of CS teachers actually uh this is what they learned in. So COBOL, Fortran, and now um, BASIC. Hmm. I think those are some of the biggies that um, have brand recognition, you might say. Yeah. Um, I don't know if it's how necessary it is for kids to learn it 
uh, we study Shakespeare for the literary value. So maybe there is some cultural value, right? Right. Like, Not sure. It, like, would I have any strength if I had a fundamental understanding of basic, um, like walking into a contemporary dev shop? Well, sure. You can always learn about, um, I, I mean, there's all sorts of things you could learn just, just by understanding how it works and, um, just by understanding the paradigm for it. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And creating that schema, it will definitely benefit you. Right. It's just that it may not have, um, like a one-to-one -one practical use. Right. Um, and you know, you can go to the living computer museum uh -huh. in Seattle and program in any of these languages. Um, their entire museum is full of historic computers that all work. Whoa. The living yeah. computer museum. I need, we need to, uh, I need to look into that. Fantastic. Yeah. I didn't the know idea it existed. Is, yeah. The idea is that you can sit down at any computer and there's an instruction sheet and you can program it. Wow. That's awesome. I think it's owned by Paul Ellis foundation. Oh, very cool. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. So we have historical languages. We talked about basic, we talked about COBOL. Mm -hmm. Um, what was the third one? Fortran. Fortran. Um, Am I am I right that the didn't the inventor of Fortran wasn't wasn't that um oh what was it was it was a woman computer scientist wasn't it maybe look it up no no I have it right here John Backus John he sounds like a computer scientist right what, what am I thinking of though I thought it was Fortran. Um, I think our, my audience, uh, loves to just listen to us Google. Yeah, there he is. Right. John Backus. Um, oh, wait a second. You know who I'm thinking of? I'm thinking of Grace Hopper and she didn't, yeah. she didn't invent Fortran, but she had a role. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, she had a role in COBOL as well Maybe yeah that's what i'm thinking of yeah um that's for another show but you guys do you want in oh sorry go ahead everybody needs to, to go make... check them out go ahead you go oh yeah she wanted to make programming languages more usable by people which is pretty cool that's a crazy idea yeah <laughs> Um, yeah, uh, Grace Hopper is super cool. And actually, um, if you go back to the episode that I did with folks at the Computer History Museum, we talk a little bit about Grace Hopper. Huh, um, great. so that's a good one. All right. So next stop on, mm -hmm. in our travel log here, um, is let's take a trip to our robot future. So here's here's there's lots of different robot futures that are possible, obviously. But the one that I'm thinking of is like um, 
we're under constant surveillance, not just in in a creepy big big brother big sister kind of way, but um, we have bio data and we have wearable technologies uh, in our clothes. We have wearables. We have just data everywhere. So let's say you were dropped into that future. Um, let's talk about what languages give you a fighting chance of making sense of all that. Um, minus the ones that obviously we just haven't invented yet. Mm-hmm. Well, first, is it a language? You know, do we just need a, a basic literacy of AI and how it works so that we can advocate at a policy level? I don't know. Tell that. Right. That's part of it. Um, which I have to give a plug for, um, AI for all.org. They have an open learning curriculum awesome. with free AI curriculum for high school students. Beautiful. AI for all.org. Yep. Okay. So, so one of the- so you need some, some understanding of AI, uh, no matter what. Yeah. Just a basic, how does it work? Where is the data coming from? How is it being used? Right. Okay. How does algorithmic bias enter a system? And what can we do about it? Yeah. Now we have to talk about algorithmic bias. Okay. Do you feel comfortable defining algorithmic bias? Ooh. You could even just give me an example. Sure. We're Well, it's just, there are several places within... Um, a machine learning or an AI system that bias can enter into it. Human bias can enter into it. And then it can be amplified due to the nature of machine learning. Um, so there's so many examples. Um, one, some really common ones that uh, most people know, facial recognition, mm. recognizing white faces, but not black and brown faces. Um one that Google uh, uses is a shoe. Um, so people drew pictures of a shoe and the algorithm could recognize a tennis shoe, but it couldn't recognize other types of shoes because um, the data was skewed towards tennis shoes. Like a clog, right? for example. Yes. Yes. That's a, that's a less loaded example of bias. <laughs> but um, there are definitely... Uh, I think uh, there's an article showing how a system, they actually wanted to test and see if it could become racist and it learned racism. Mm. So there's a lot of harm that can be done. Wowzers. Okay. So let's, uh, I'm going to dream up an example from our robot future, right? Let's take a health example. Okay, here's my idea is medically, um, there's some combination of of stats, right? Um, Mm -hmm. That become a signal for um, a being predisposed to a certain kind of disease, for example. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, then it actually turns out that 
you aren't predisposed to the disease. It's actually a, a, a different marker. And, you know, my low blood pressure combination with uh, emphysema actually means something completely different. But um, our machines start to, you know, recognize what we programmed as a deficit. And we have all kinds of systems built off of that, that tag somebody as like, for example, a high health care risk when in fact they're not. Right. Well, so AI can make predictions, sometimes highly accurate predictions about groups. But that means that individuals, you know, there's potential for individuals to be harmed in some way by that. Right. Or or just that to understand it doesn't a hundred percent describe every individual right there's a difference there there's this under this subtlety and understanding well we're talking about predictions and probabilities right. here which i think in general it's our human brains don't handle that very well yep um no they don't but we can have kids uh programming uh a machine learning library right now if we wanted mm-hmm. so there's a tool, a library called TensorFlow, again, using Python. Um, and they have a TensorFlow playground that happens all in the browser. So if students know a basic level of Python, they can do some programming and machine learning. Um, that's awesome. So TensorFlow. Yes. How, do, how does one spell that? T-E-N-S-O-R-F-L-F-L-O-W. TensorFlow. Yeah. Awesome. Um, yeah, and I guess, so, so uh, um, we have examples of what you just described, right? Like we have the whole 23andMe phenomenon. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, yeah. Right, and, and so he, that's an example where I can, you know, spit in a tube and send it to somebody and then they can make a bunch of predictions about uh, where, well, they can they can identify to a certain uh, statistical reliability where my genes are coming from and then also make a set of, of sort of predictions about health-wise, what are the, the flags, right? Right. Um and I'm trying to think, uh, yeah, I mean, those conversations tend to not land terribly well for lay people um, because there is a real hard time distinguishing between what the machine is trying to tell us versus, um, how, you know, how people interpret that as being a, a highly personal reading um, like they like instead they went to a, uh, you know, to a palm reader or something. Right. Which is why maybe the language here that you need to survive is is an understanding of statistics. Mm. You know, at some colleges, there's a, a data science or statistics for all right. movement for all undergraduates, you know, and and that can be seen as a language that everyone needs to understand Ooh. in this in this world of data. Nice. Not where I anticipated going within the robot future, but <laughs> this makes complete sense. So uh, being literate, I'm going to say being literate, 
in the mm-hmm. spaces of AI and machine learning and statistics might be the most relevant form of of preparation we could do for the robot future. Yeah. Just a I'd hypothesis. We're not making a we're not claiming with certainty. <laughs> we're making a hypothesis. Okay. Sure. Um I love that. What are the languages if if let's say I needed to go my my um geeked out self needs to go a layer deeper and i really want to learn the most popular languages relevant to programming data um what would they be well r to begin with definitely need r r r just the letter r uh and tell me what what uh, how do i get around with r r is used a lot in um biology and computing within scientific research. Okay. Give me so, an example of what so it does. So it's really, it's really made for data science. Okay. Um, that may be getting in a bit over my head, giving <laughs> specific examples of R, but it, it's definitely like really usable. For example, um, I have a colleague who programs in R as part of his cancer research. Okay. Um, and again, my favorite, I'm going to plug Python. Right. Um, Python's used in astronomy research. It's used um, data data related uh, to the Kepler telescope. Whoa. Okay. And I'm sure they use other, they probably use R as well as, as well as some other languages too. Not, not shabby. Um, okay. Ready? Yeah. I Googled it. Well, first of all, R was invented by pirates. Get it? (laughs) R. R. I just made that up right now. That wasn't from the internet. Um, I'm still looking for a good link on the internet, which is why I made made the joke. Some would call it a joke. Um, Others, a bad one. Here we go. Why is R used for data science? R is used for extracting, transforming, and loading information. It offers interface for many databases like like SQL and spreadsheets. Um, It's still not examples. I want examples. SQL would also be important. Okay. Tell me about SQL. Uh, well, it's just used for databases, right? Which is an important piece of data science. Exactly. Um, what about data? Like, so when we talk about facial recognition, right? Um, how mm-hmm. does how? What do I need to know? Like, that's not a SQL database, right? No. Um, I don't think so. Right, because because. Presumably, you have a video that takes a still that that separates those pixels, right? And then it's documenting mm-hmm. the pixels uniquely. Uh, how does that work? I'm just, I feel like you'd be using like C, C++, like going back to that. Let me see, which... Programming languages for image recognition. Oh, I was right. 
C, C++, C Sharp, Java, Python, MATLAB. Of course, you were right. Um, okay. R can be used for statistical analysis, graphics, and reporting. R can be used to manipulate data, run statistical analyses such as descriptive statistics, t-tests, regressions, and produce charts. R can even be used to make maps and play Minesweeper. <laughs> Very useful. Uh, Rprogramming.net has many, many uh, sentences that you can read. Okay. Um, what else? We talked about SQL. R. Mm -hmm. uh, we talked about these literacies of statistics and um, machine learning. Um, anything else we're missing in the robot future? I'm packing one bag. I need everything in it. Well, I just uh, looked up. So now that I looked up those image ones, it brought up MATLAB. Um, so that is related to different things you could do with math. Um, it also brought up... Scala and Julia and Java. Like there's There we go. We have our full toolkit. Right. This is an insane amount of learning I need to do for the robot future. <laughs> well, I guess my kids need but to do. Do you need to be fluent in all of it or able to navigate it? Um I just need to navigate. You're right. Yeah. You're right. I won't stress. You're good. You're like um, both a computer science educator and therapist um, <laughs> for my travels, which might well, be exactly what I need. Well, I do a lot of teacher coaching, which is which can cross <laughs> over into therapy. <laughs> I'm just saying. <laughs> You're getting very, very good. Okay. Um, last stop. Okay. Uh, we and you know, uh, I'm I'm gonna think of more stops and then have you back to make these stops with me. Uh, but okay. I want to leave time before I let you go to talk about your book. Um, okay, this last one is kind of convoluted, and you have to stick with me. So, okay. here here was my thinking. Right. The so the last stop is um, the theater of internet. So here's what I mean. Let's okay. pretend. You and I are in the audience for every piece of entertainment and information that the internet can provide, right? Um, every web page, site, social media space, um, all of them have like a set designer, right? We're all in the audience for for these uh, for these different shows. So, in CS, we'd call it a front end. Right. Mm -hmm. So let's pretend we're a contemporary set dresser for the Internet. What language is most pervasive? Where are things currently? And do you have feelings about uh, where they're headed? I mean, you know, it was like two years ago, you couldn't sneeze without um you know, like if you were building a website, like, mm -hmm. you know, it was like uh, JavaScript um like bananas and to the extent that it it was uh out of hand so so what do i what do i need to um pack this bag with and you've now added this interesting um element of like 
um, literacies, which are like my socks and underwear, mm-hmm. and then languages, which um, which are I don't know sweaters and pants. Um, so give me give me both. Sure. Well, I mean, it's still the same HTML, CSS, JavaScript, right? Um, but not everybody needs that. Um, you can use a library like Bootstrap. Um, you could even just know enough HTML and CSS that you can sort of customize the template websites that are out there, right? Um, like what? Give me an example. Okay, so for example, if you have, I don't know if this is around anymore. Uh, MySpace. 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 <laughs> <laughs> WordPress. If you have a WordPress site. Okay, okay. Right, you can go through and you can pick their template. Um, or you can click on the little show me the HTML mode. Right. And you can have your own CSS file that you load in there and make it your own, right? right? Um, or you can just make small adjustments to what they have there. You can go in and um, play with the markup and and make it your own. So, so it depends on how in depth you want to go. Are you going to earn your living as a set designer, or do you want to just design your own set? so that Mm. you don't have to hire a set designer. Good question. And you may be better or more interested in one rather than another, right? So um, if I'm a graphic designer, for example, I might be more CSS and JavaScript. Yeah. Um, Let's talk very quickly, because I feel like it it may actually be helpful for the for the teacher who's not maybe they're they're CS curious, right? Mm-hmm. Um, HTML is hypertext markup language, right? Yes. Explain the difference between HTML and CSS. Okay, this is how I uh, describe it to my students. HTML is the content. Um, CSS is the design. And JavaScript is the interaction. Yes. Okay. So um, I'm trying to think of a site that everybody, so that everybody loves. Um, So like the division of motor vehicles website, everybody loves that. You go. Everybody loves that. Yeah, you go there, and um, there are pictures of cars with drop-down menus of all the things you can do at the Division of Motor Vehicles, um, and then a bunch of like feeds of like things you need to know or bring with you or whatever else. Which of those are HTML, and which of those are CSS? All the text and pictures are HTML. The CSS is more the layout, the background, uh, etc. Right. So, like, where are the and, bu- where are the buttons on the page? Yes, exactly. And then the drop down there. There's some JavaScript there. Right? Uh, so the footer on a website, like where um, the phone number is, and some email that nobody responds to. That right. 
And there's a lot of crossover here. You could do it in HTML. You could do it in CSS, Whoa. right? How, so, uh, how serious do you want to get about the design? Right. Oh, I think the DMV wants to get very <laughs> serious, serious. Right? Very serious. So. Okay. Um, so we talked HTML, CSS, JavaScript. Um, on the DMV site, what's the JavaScript? Uh, the drop-down menus, the click here to download this form, the built-in form to search for your parking tickets. Ooh, nice. I do not have any parking tickets, Meg. Congrats. <laughs> <laughs> Lest you believe I'm an unsafe driver. Uh, Only no. because I live in Brooklyn and I'm carless. Right. Oh. I'm sorry. <laughs> so kind of sorry, not sorry, because it's, it's sometimes a pain to have a car. But um, yeah. anyway, I'm glad this episode veered into um, Division of Motor Vehicles. I think they'll be – they're actually a sponsor today. Um, <laughs> no, nope. But I'd welcome them as a sponsor. <laughs> um, okay. So any what else do we need to know? Uh, what about socks and underwear? Literacies for the internet? What do, what do I need to pack? Well, literacies for being a contributor to the internet for right? Yeah. Is that what you mean? I mean uh, all of it. Like let's put digital citizenship aside, okay? Um, you need to so students want to create websites, right? Um, I would hope so. They can learn CSS, HTML, JavaScript, but they really need to learn how do you host a website? Where do you host it? How do you set up a server to host a website? Um, right. And this is something that's often not in the curriculum. And it's that vital final step that actually lets them put their work into the real world. Right. So they need that piece. Yes. Dare I say there's a lot of ethics um, as as literacies vital to the internet uh, we would be we would be this would not be a full conversation if we weren't talking about the the ethics of what we're building right absolutely um, all of these here's a nice plug for the uh, CS education framework I feel like. Mm -hmm. to, tell us about that because that was a project you contributed to so the k-12 cs education framework is a it's a bit of a meta document because it's really meant to be the framework that all the standards that are coming out and being developed are based on um and it's really meant to define what is this discipline of computer science education mm. what do we mean by it and what do students need to know mm -hmm. um and then standards writers from CSTA, from the different states, uh, can use it as a foundational document and a, a sort of a common language to then create their standards and, and build their standards off of. So it is. it does work as um, – it works as a, 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 an instrument that can inform policy – Mm -hmm. it's oh, yes. it certainly works as like a backward design tool for curriculum right yeah um yes. 
it works as something that you could certainly use to align. Maybe you're already doing things or already have standards as a state mm-hmm. or as a district that you could align to. Um, yep. One of my favorite favorite, favorite uses is for informal educators. Um, maybe you have an after school program and you're like, I think we're doing CS, but I, you know, I'm not formally mm-hmm. trained as a computer science educator. Uh, the framework is a great way to uh, draw from the best thinking of a lot of really smart computer science educators um, and think about how to more deliberately tie some of the awesome stuff you're doing in after school to, um, mm-hmm. to stuff that the industry and schools care about. Yeah, and they were really um, thoughtful and aspirational in developing the practices piece of it, Mm. um, which includes things like um, advocating for and creating a diverse space, uh, a diverse learning space and building space, um, communicating about computing, collaborating together around computing. And and those become vital to CS education. um, And they're things that are really important in professional CS, I think. Right that we sometimes forget, like we just focus on, well, how do you do this type of programming? Yeah. Um, I'm glad we got to talk about the framework. Somebody's going to be happy. We <laughs> talked about it. Leanne, maybe. Shout out. Um, okay. We didn't get to talk about binary and it's a bummer to me, but but um, we I, I want to have you back for an entire episode about binary. Uh, I, I don't know how we make that interesting, but I'm sure there's a way. Um, the my question earlier, which I which I missed, is um, as we were talking about some of the background for language, is that it all kind of requires an understanding of binary, right? Um, the mm-hmm. idea of ones and zeros, but can you just go, you don't have to, um, don't give me the whole textbook on it, but when you talk to students about binary, it's easy to get into the weeds and have them lose interest. What's the, what's the, what's the like nugget that you put out there as a way to engage students in binary, but not have them obsess? Sure. Um, so I don't think they really need an understanding of it. I want them to know it exists. And my big thing is I have one of them hold up their phones Mm -hmm. and I say every single thing that you can do on this phone comes down to giving instructions in on off switches, ones and zeros, every single thing you can do with the computer on and off on off. That's it. And they're just like, whoa, how does that even happen? Right. And then we sort of talk about what are some of the layers? Like when you program, then it's actually kind of has to go through some other software in your computer and it eventually gets translated to binary, to ones and zeros, which turn into circuit on and off circuits. Uh And that's kind of the extent um, that I really want them to get unless they get super into it or we're doing a more in-depth course. Right. Cause it gets mathy, right? There's right. like, right. there's like, um, 
an array. There's a certain number of, oh, how does it, I, I have to remember. I, I, I once participated, um, in, in creating some, some curriculum around binary and, um, I've lost it all, but, uh, it gets mathy. And I think that's the level at which, um, the level at which, you know, I aspire to, to have better understanding, but it's, it's, um, it's not, it's not exactly, uh, an easy one to make straightforward. Right. I think it's really fun to play with different bases. For some reason, my students don't. (laughs) (laughs) Right. But I, you know, it's interesting because I have little kids and, and, uh, I always it's it's hard um, whenever we play with uh, like we've had all the kits like we've had little bits we've had snap circuits um, you know we've just used uh, wire and batteries kind of stuff to light up LEDs uh, and whenever I say something like this is the entire premise of uh, or or sort of first principle I should say of how. Um, computers work how this show is on tv mm-hmm. how uh, and and it's like whoa but how and then i get into the deeper explanation and it's like yeah i i just kind of lose them mm-hmm. um but i always do emphasize uh that that sort of how important because i think too when we talk about stem education for example um a lot of times funders walk into a room and it's like, oh, if you see a circuit go on and off, you know, obviously STEM is happening. Um, We don't always do a great job of helping to translate why simple circuits are such an important first uh, principle for other Mm -hmm. things. But, um, but anyway, it, it feels like it has so much to do with, um, to do with what you're saying. Yeah. I'd like students to, when we do a lot of paper circuits, and I would really like them to understand these are the building blocks of a computer. Yeah. You might not understand why yet or how that works yet. Yeah. But this is just giving you a taste. Right. Yeah, I love that. I like paper circuits. I love paper circuits. They're so accessible. They're affordable for schools. Yes. And they're so much fun. Yes. Do you have a favorite resource with paper circuits that, that uh, you recommend to people? Yes, nextmap.org. And I also like, I've been using the Chibi Clip to have Ooh. students program paper circuits, which has been fun. Nextmap has the um, Hack Your Notebook projects, which are fun. I want to make sure I got the right. Yes. So, nextmap.org. Mm-hmm. And, and Chibi Clip. Chibi which Clip. Is on- which I think make code. Nextmap.org. These are, these are beautiful. I like these. Chibitronics. That's the one. Isn't that, um, there's a, is that G? Yes. Uh, G keys. Um, yes. Yes, it is. She does great work. And um, make code has an interface for programming it too. Um, you know, I got to have G on the show because she's terrific. So yeah, you do. Chibitronics.com. G, at the time anyway, she was at um, MIT when when I met her. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and she has just a really awesome chibitronics.com. You can check out, uh, so learn tech through arts and crafts. And she's just got a, a set of kits that are really beautiful mm-hmm. and quite accessible. Um, speaking of resources, can we talk mm-hmm. about the latest um, Meg Ray? Uh, let's just, let's dive in. Tell me about vampire pizzas. Like why, how is this relevant to, um, to anything? I mean, as far as I'm concerned, it's relevant to everything, but, um, tell me about vampire pizzas. Vampire pizzas. All right. Well, uh, vampire pizzas can get into your pizza boxes and eat all the pizza sauce. Um, (laughs) Terrible. So it's a plants versus zombies type game. Okay. And uh, so you're trying, you are sort of doing a tower defense to prevent the uh, vampire pizza from entering the pizza box because you will get a bad review. Right. And have your restaurant shut down if you have too many bad reviews. Got it. Um, so this came about because I am not a game designer, but I am a gamer. <laughs> right. And so I wanted something that I wanted students to be able to create a full game and not just pieces of a game or um, a, a lot of the arcade games. There are all, there are already so many books with the basic arcade games and kids can make them and they're mm-hmm. really fun. Uh, but I wanted them to make some a uh, type of game they were familiar with and be able to create the entire thing start to finish so start to finish so we came up with vampire pizzas it's a beautiful thing um, yeah and the uh artist of the book keith zoo is a designer for indie uh video games nice so he drew all the vampire pizzas and and all the other types of monsters we have a cthulhu pizza and a um, zombie pizza vampire pizza all all the different types (laughs) a werewolf pizza i love it they're they're adorable um (laughs) they really are adorable i have a copy (laughs) i have a copy right here you can see it on my awesome sill um yeah so i wanted kids to have a a project-based learning experience um, not just go through a tutorial, but um, get the full experience of of planning and executing a project from start to finish, and then being able to have the freedom to just break it apart and play with it and create something new. Beautiful. So, tell me about the uh, like your book. First of all, the title of your book, "Code This Game." Um. By Meg Ray, art by Keith Zhu, mm-hmm. uh, just like it sounds. Yeah. Uh, Attack of the Vampire Pizzas and subtitled Make Your Game Using Python, then break your game to create a new one. Um, it has a kickstand. Tell me why, what is with a book with a kickstand? Uh, when I taught computer science, um, I noticed that my students were always looking down at the handouts, mm. putting their head down to the handouts to look and then looking up at the screen awkwardly and losing their place when they went between the two. Yes. And I didn't want that to happen. I was like, they're going to follow along. They're going to lay this book down and they're going to lose their place going back and forth. Right. Uh, And I thought about 
when I learned to type in middle school and high school. Yes, they had those little had clippy a, things. Yeah, I had a flip book with a stand so it could be right next to the screen. Yes. And I was like, I want that. And on that, the publisher was amazing. They were like, we'll make it happen. And they did. Oh, I love that. So published by, it's Macmillan, right? I don't know the it's imprint. Macmillan. Um, Odd Dot is a brand new imprint of Macmillan Children's. Odddot.com. You can check them out. Yeah. Um, that's pretty amazing, though, to work with a publisher and be like, I want a kickstand in my book and then say, okay. Oh, they are great. They um, were so committed to the vision of the book and also to keeping the cost as low as possible to make it accessible. We wanted like a heavy duty um, coding book. Here's how you code. Right. Um, that could really be accessible to a group of reader of young readers that maybe wouldn't normally pick up a coding book. It's awesome. 25 bucks. Yeah. And I wanted them to, uh, the reason you break the game is I didn't want them to be afraid to, play with the code and break things and experiment right so. right i love it i love how accessible it is i love that it feel it sort of looks and feels like something um you learn with and uh and and it's not intimidating like a big like i think people may be familiar you see uh you know uh programmers on the train with like those big O'Reilly books that are oh, yeah. um, monstrous sort of tomes right. to Python or whatever you're yeah. um, this in contrast feels a little bit more it's like I don't know like a comic book spiral bound so it feels mm -hmm. super you know just easy to pick up and use um, and anyway I, I love how it came out and um, yeah and I think, uh, are you getting feedback on it already? There are no reviews yet, but <laughs> I've gotten some great anecdotal feedback. I mean, I did not pull any punches. It's a it's a difficult book um, to sit down and have your first experience be to program a game from start to finish. Isn't easy, but I hope that it is supportive and encouraging along the way. Yes, and and I've gotten good feedback about that so far that um kids are picking it up and sticking with it which is some of the best feedback that uh you can get yes uh it is it's the best um well, I love how it came out, and I think people are going to love it. And I can't uh, thank you enough. I thought of my um, my cross, my cross, uh, as I was making my analogy. So, what I was going to say is, it's like manga and highlights magazine had a baby uh, um, for computer science education. Um, I love that. Uh, so I will uh, now. I have to go back and cut that in where I stuttered, but um, but that's what I was thinking is highlights. Um, mm -hmm. Anyway. Meg, thank you so much for doing this. I hope this uh, is just the first of many times you'll come back and visit and and answer and be my uh, my travel guide. Absolutely, I'd love to. Thank you. I really appreciate it, Meg Ray. And the book is Code This Game. Any place else that people should um, check you out, follow your work, or work you care about? Sorry, I'm at Teach underscore Python, um, and. I actually recently received a grant from the Python Software Foundation. Whoa, congrats. 
Thank you. To create an accessible landing page for Python education. So keep an eye out. And if you're interested in being a contributor, that's an open source project. Feel free to reach out to me on Twitter. That's amazing. Now we all know what an open source project is. So uh, Exactly. Meg, thank you again. Uh, I really appreciate you being here. Thank you. For more info about advertising with us, charitable sponsorship, or if you have show ideas you want to share, find me on Twitter at M.A. Lesser. The tracks in this podcast were produced by Leroy Tindy, a guest in episode zero, an Ithaca bomber, an engineer of digital things and fresh beats. Find him on SoundCloud at Air Tindy Beats. No such thing is produced by me, Mark Lesser, a learner like you, and our show notes can be found at nosuchthingpodcast.org. 